0: learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare care related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: What would be more boring than always being around people who were just like you? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Welcome to America Out Loud Pulse, a beat ahead. Over the last 20 years, researchers have delved into something called social determinants of health. That's the impact of an individual's personal circumstances on their health and well being. For many, many years, as part of their routine, doctors have been taking what's called a social history. The physicians who actually listened to their patients knew what these recent studies have concluded. Clinical medical care only accounts for 20% of health outcomes and social circumstances account for a whopping 40%. The increased interest in social determinants of health coincides with the recent focus on racially related issues in the United States. Policymakers note that interpersonal or systemic racism is a threat to health. On the other hand, basic common sense tells us that positive relationships at home and at work and in the community can help reduce the impact of various negative factors. Let's face it, relationships among individuals is really what life is all about. Since their exit from the womb, some Americans are fortunate to be surrounded by a kaleidoscope of humanity. Others grow up insulated from different types of people, music, dance, and art forms. When they leave their cocoon, they're hit with, you know, culture shock. Most of these people embrace the differences. A few of them fear them. Generally, the truth wins out. We're all human and we're all parts contributing to the whole. The vast majority of us find ways, all on our own, to work with and work out our differences and live together. I think society reflects what Doug Floyd said. You don't get harmony when everybody sings the same note. And add that to what Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky said bureaucracy and social harmony are inversely proportional to each other. We all do better when the government keeps its nose out of our business. Currently, the government and its puppets, yes, even in healthcare. Keep stoking the fires of racism, and won't let the embers die out. They foment social unrest so they can swoop in with the solution. Well, attention, true believers. Beware the cures for the government-induced disease. One of many reasons that the government and organized medicine is that they haven't always exhibited ethical behavior. They latched on to the eugenics movement, and the Supreme Court even decided that forced sterilization was constitutional. And now the power brokers are convincing people that turning their reasonably contented selves into victims is some sort of a badge of honor, a source of pride. With victimhood comes lack of accountability and ultimately disorder. As frightening fiction like The Clockwork Orange and The Purge become fact, the authoritarians watch and wait for their moment to pounce. My guest today is an observer and more importantly, a participant of life. We'll discuss how his life merged a lot of intersecting roads together. Robert Grayboys is an economist, journalist, and musician in Virginia. He publishes Bastiat's Window, an online journal exploring economics, ethics, health, technology, and culture. He has a PhD in economics from Columbia, and he's been an economist at the Federal Reserve, and a professor and healthcare scholar at the Mercatus Center, and he's the author of Fortress and Frontier in American Health, I'm sorry, American Health Care. And he received Reason Foundation's 2014 Bastiat Prize for Journalism. And he currently is a FAIR in Medicine Fellow. And as we've mentioned before, FAIR is the abbreviation for Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Welcome, Robert Grayboys.
2: Well, thank you, Marilyn. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, You'll forgive me if you you may hear dogs barking. They're being fed in the kitchen nearby for the next two or three minutes, but uh, that will calm down.
1: Well, I have to say I had to laugh to myself when we first met some time ago, and we met through fair and all this racism stuff. And back in the day, in urban lingo, when I was in high school, and I guess it still is, gray boy is the slang for a white boy. So I thought, here it is. I'm talking to Robert
2: Grayboy. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I, I actually, and and I am kind of an aficionado of slang and, and linguistics. And I didn't know that. That's well. That's great.
1: (laughs) You'll have to look it up in the Urban Dictionary. And and you know how. I'll look it up,
2: (laughs) and I'll I'll add to it, since you mention it, uh, if you ask the origin of my name, it actually, as far as we know, was uh, an anti-Semitic insult given by Russian officials uh, sometime in the 19th century. And why is a long story, but it apparently was an insult over there.
1: Well, who knows? Maybe they're somehow connected. Well, let's get started. I just, I'm kind of, I just found you an interesting person, and I'm sure our listeners will too. And just because you really do intersect everything the United States is supposed to be standing for. And so let's get started. How, where were you born, and how did you grow up?
2: I was born in Petersburg, Virginia, which is about 25 miles south of Richmond. It is best known because it was the scene of the final great battle for about two years of the Civil War, and when Petersburg finally fell, it was... The Confederates had no choice other than to head up the road to Appomattox where it all ended. And it was, it was, it I don't know, it was kind of considered a recent event in Petersburg. And just as a a small thing, uh, I lived two or three blocks from battlements, the the remnants of the, the battlements that had been built there. And so I rode my bicycle up and down these, uh, you know, fortiments that, that had been, been built, you know, 90 years earlier, 90 to hundred years earlier in this war that was held you know, on the grounds of where the house I lived was. Uh, and it was more than a casual bit of history there. It was still living in the good sense and in the bad sense. How so? Oh, there was still enormous rancor and enormous bitterness. Uh, the, you know, of course, slavery had been uh, a mainstay. The The city was somewhere roughly 50 50 black and white. Uh, it was an extremely tense time. I was born just prior to, well, I, you know, when I was born. Uh, Plessy v. Ferguson was still the law of the lands, the separate but equal ruling from the 1890s. Uh, It would fall about four months into my life when Brown v. Board of Education uh, was uh, issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. And then at that point, Virginia went into a process of 10 to 15 years of trying to throw up the barricades against Brown v. Board and to somehow maintain segregation via, uh, well, the, the bird machine government called it interposition. Uh, they were going to interpose themselves between the Supreme Court and the people of Virginia. It was just an extraordinarily bitter time uh, and it, it rather dominated civic life in that time. I lived... Right near those battlements, there was a lovely lake where people used to swim, and they shut the lake down for swimming because they were going to have to integrate it, and they preferred that to lose their swimming place rather than to integrate. Uh, And it was just a constant, constant presence in life. Uh, In the positive way, you you could see progress, and actually it was a... Things were happening in, in, our time, in our small little city there that in small ways made the history books. Uh, we had a the public library, which was built, which was in an old house that had been donated to the city, uh, had a stricture on, on its deed of transfer that said, that no African-American could ever be served on the first floor or could enter the building and go into the stacks. Uh, They had to go to the basement through a side door. And sometime in the early 60s, when the civil rights movement was revving up, uh, a group of uh, African-American citizens led by I don't have to remember which they were, but I think it was a, a couple of preachers in town walked in the front door, walked up to the front desk, and in what uh, what I would say is an early version of trolling, he walked up to the front desk and asked if he could get a biography of Robert E. Lee. Um, but the, these these things, and it it made national headlines, and it was. Sort of the beginning of the end, and so there and there were there were a lot of inspiring people like that who uh, who fought the good fight, and ultimately ultimately won, though it was a bitter fight, it was a, a long struggle, and it was as I said, uh, it's hard for people who weren't there to imagine just how pervasive this was in civic life. Uh, well, did
1: did you go to an integrated school and have black Uh, classmates and friends?
2: I went, so for the first, I would guess my first six grades, it was 100% white. um, Probably when I was in seventh grade, which would have been around 1966, 1967, three or four Black students came to our school, which was a courageous thing to do. Um, one in particular, maybe maybe two of them, um, daughter or daughters of a man who would become the first African mayor, African-American mayor of our city. Um, and they, they came to the school, which was, a, again, a rather courageous thing to do. Um, I don't think they at that stage, ever faced any violence. Uh, But it was certainly, for many people, an uncomfortable thing, and I always admired them for doing it. So I went to high school in 1967 through 1972. And when I got there, I would guess that my class was perhaps 10% black and 90% white. You know, sprinkling of others. And then in my junior year, <clears throat> the 100% Black high school merged with ours. You had a, a bunch of white flight at that time, so that uh, for the last two years of my high school, it was about two-thirds Black and one-third White, which I thought was just fine. And I was deeply into music and uh, the students from what was called Peabody High School brought over some terrific musical traditions that I was very happy to uh, to share in when they got there. But it was really that year that it totally integrated, and we had—I was talking to one of my classmates Tuesday about this. Um, we did have one riot, uh, quite a violent affair. As far as I know, it was not students. It was outsiders coming in to make some trouble. And it was over fairly quickly. And while there was some tension, the, the, the last two years of high school were, I, I, they were they, they were extraordinarily enjoyable for me. And I, I have a lot of friends from, from that era. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm sad to say that our class still never had a reunion that included both sides of the racial divide. Uh, I've never actually been to a reunion on of, of either side. I, I actually there was one that was primarily or exclusively, a uh, black students this year, and I would have gone except my wife had just had a knee replacement, so I couldn't get out of the house. But it's a sad thing, and I I talk about it all the time with with both black and white friends from my class and a shame that they still 50 years later, still haven't quite gotten the act together to get together.
1: Well, you know, you say that, but what's Mm -hmm. sickening is now the students, after years of clamoring for integration, that's my generation, and being thrilled that we could go the same places white people could go, suddenly want separate graduations, separate dining, separate student unions, and all this. And it's just it's it's sad. And you hear somebody like you who grew up and went from segregation to integration and embraced it and have these people turning the clock back. When we get back from our little break, I want to talk to you about how it appears to me that some of the way you grew up, your social history, determines some of the work you did um, as an adult. Absolutely. So I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got the free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. And the Pulse is on every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 10 p.m. And the best part, iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. So you can listen on your way to work. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. The episodes are on lots of networks. Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart. So make it easy. Just bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. Just to let you know the lineup. you are Here we are on Mondays with me, Marilyn Singleton, Tuesdays. With concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley, Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. These folks I look at as the conscience of psychiatry, and Fridays with Nurse Jody O'Malley. And we do have a new feature. If you have any questions, send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, and we'll get you an answer, and it can come from either the host or the guest.
0: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer.
1: So, Mr. Grayboys, yes. tell me, it looks like you've done a lot of writings, both in your new Substack and some of your published papers on eugenics. Can you tell the folks what eugenics is about? I know we've discussed this on the show before, but obviously everybody doesn't hear every show, so uh, tell us what eugenics is all about.
2: Right. Eugenics was a peculiar late 19th century, early 20th century attempt to create a science out of being well-born. The name eugenics is from two Greek words, meaning well-born. What it really was, was an attempt to build a scientific framework to explain and justify snobbery and racism. It was as simple as that. The thing is, it was built by brilliant people. If you've ever taken a statistics class in high school or college or grad school, and you learn all about F tests and normal distributions and 5% uh, significance, ratios, that sort of thing. Almost all of that came out of eugenesis. The the three big founders, and I just wrote one of my uh, Substack pieces uh, in, in my Substack, which is called Bastiat's Window. Uh, it's available there on the web, and I encourage you to look at it, and if you like it, to subscribe. But I just wrote a piece called The Briar and the Rose, in which I... I I described the foundation of statistics as being like a rose bush that produces both beautiful flower and terrible thorns. So the beautiful flower is that uh, the early eugenicists, uh, uh, three men by the name of Galton, Pearson, and Fisher, created. What we know is statistics. Every again, if you've taken a statistics class, you're studying the work of Galton, Pearson, and Fisher, and it became the foundation of modern science. It allowed us to have, uh, it allowed us to go to the moon. It allowed us to crack genetic codes. It allowed us to do uh, high level quality control. Everything in science today is based on statistics. Uh, and that's the the rose part of it, but the briar is that the whole thing, the whole project was originally constructed so that they could demonstrate the inferiority of not just racial groups. So they did want to prove absolutely that, you know, for example, that people of African descent would have you know lower IQs, or they, that's they wanted to prove that, and and they thought they did. What they wanted to do uh, was to essentially, what, what it came down to, they wanted to prevent the, what they thought of as the bottom 10% of society from reproducing. I mean, originally, when this stuff started in the 19th century, it was sort of, oh, well, we want to get swell, smart, rich people and, you know, get them to marry each other and have lots of kids who will be superior, it fairly quickly turned into a much darker vision, an image of well, what we want to do is prevent the people we don't like from having children. And they actually talked about euthanizing people, but the uh, and, and and this was this was not by far out crazy people. This was the Carnegie um, Institute, uh, which was issuing papers on this, which unfortunately made their way to Germany and were very influential uh, in the middle of the century. Uh, But they decided that euthanasia wasn't gonna be popular at that point, so they decided uh, sterilization was the next best thing. And they ultimately manufactured a Supreme Court case on absolutely spurious grounds. They found an unfortunate young woman, a teenager, who had gotten pregnant, and they, the state of Virginia judged her to be morally inferior, socially inadequate was the word they used, and they determined that this was clearly genetic because she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Now, the, the actual story was, she was living in a foster home, and the nephew of her foster parents raped her, And so the fact that she was raped and got pregnant, the state of Virginia decided uh, that she was socially inadequate and that they wanted to sterilize her. They took the case, uh, which was in many ways an absolutely bogus case, and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who to me somewhat inexplicably has a, a reputation as a great voice for liberty, He issued the most chilling words in the history, I think, of of the U.S. Supreme Court, which was, and i will see if I can pull it up from memory, The, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. And with that, the Supreme Court opened the floodgates, and ultimately, by the 1970s, somewhere over 70,000 Americans had been forcibly sterilized uh, because various states in the Union just thought they were inadequate. And, and frankly, it was usually people who had been deprived of opportunity, people who had undergone hardship, and the state decided, well, this must be genetic. Uh, they would, they would, and The Nazis took this to great extremes. It, it, It ended the use of the word eugenics. Nobody wanted to talk about eugenics after the 1930s. But it actually didn't stop, for the most part, until the 1970s. Virginia did its last sterilizations in 1979. And actually, in the state of California, they were still doing sterilizations, sometime without sometimes without fully informing the person, uh, usually a woman, being sterilized. That didn't stop in California until 2014.
1: And we wonder now, do we still have the so-called Mississippi appendectomies? And that's where a woman goes in for an appendectomy or something else. And the tubes, unbeknownst to her, were cut.
2: Yes, I just uh, just watched something on um, there was a 20 a year old socialite. This was a wealthy heiress by the name of Ann Cooper Hewitt, who in the 1920s went in for an emergency appendectomy. And her mother said, she's feeble minded. Go ahead and take out her fallopian tubes while you're in there with without telling the daughter. The daughter apparently was something of a wild child. Uh, it also came out that the mother stood to inherit a vast amount of money if her daughter did not have children. Uh, the the, the, will, the will had been written in a strange way. So these laws were used in, in awful ways. Uh, a lot of it was actually used against um, white people because... I mean, in, in the state of Virginia, and maybe overstating the case slightly, but the state government of Virginia, I think, uh, consider, well, there's, there's no use worrying about uh, African-Americans because they're a lost cause anyway. But what we can do is perfect the white race by, uh, by sterilizing a whole lot of the ones we don't want reproducing.
1: I but have to tell you something I have to interrupt sure. you here cuz what this reminds me of growing up I was it was it would have been in the 50s that there is a movie now this is true and I don't know if it's going to pop up on imdb.com or not that was called Poor White Trash and there the ad for it the big poster ad for it was never had no money never had no cash that's why they call me poor white trash and i'll just never forget it it was it was enigmatic of what you're saying now that you know it it's not just minorities when people get in this mindset this superior mindset that no one can escape
2: yeah i'm and uh, and as we're talking i'm uh, looking for a quote If I can quickly pull it up. Yes, here it is. So the leading eugenics expert in the United States was a guy who was, you'll see, defined as a biologist, but he really wasn't a biologist. he uh, I forget what his background was, some educator. But Harry Laughlin became uh, the leading voice, and he was a key witness in the Buck v. Bell Supreme Court case that I just described. He never met the young woman, and yet he testified against her. And yes, I found it here. He called the members of her family members of, quote, the shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of antisocial whites of the South. There you go. And, you know, on the basis of his testimony, he was a key witness, even though he had never met this woman that he testified against, uh, the Supreme Court by a large majority held uh, held for his side of the case and the floodgates were opened for mandatory sterilization. And now uh, you did get a lot of what you were talking about in North Carolina. Uh, the state of North Carolina had a eugenics board into, and I, I should know because I just wrote about it, I think it was into the 1970s. They had a board of eugenics, and there was a fellow who was instrumental in Charlotte-Mecklenburg area, now, Dr. Wallace Keralt. His his son, Charles Caralt was a famous CBS uh, commentator. But Dr. Wallace Kuralt, uh was instrumental in pushing lots and lots and lots of uh, sterilizations, especially among African-American women. One of the nurses in the public health system there. I remember reading a quote from her saying, I never understood why so many African-American women were in need of hysterectomies until this stuff came out in the news. And she's, in her heart, you realize that's what they had us doing. Um, now, Now, what's interesting about him was You would think, well, was Wallace Carroll some sort of Ku Klux Klansman or something? Well, he was not. He was regarded as a leading progressive in the state of North Carolina. Uh, This stuff was viewed as, until it faded away, it was very much viewed as sort of exemplary use of science. It was uh, people... People from both sides of the political aisle were, were very much in line with this stuff, but it really, more than anything, came out of the progressive movement, uh, out of Woodrow Wilson's and the Theodore Roosevelt's and people like that.
1: Well, you know, this is, you talk about this and I'm sure if any younger people are listening, they think, so what? That's in the past. I know you teach this to your students. Why is, is it so important? For young folks or folks that um, you know haven't heard of this before, to know about it—that it doesn't seem—and I have my own opinions about this. We'll hear yours. That it isn't really in the past. No,
2: it's not. So I used to ask students. Now I actually haven't taught. I, I taught for 19 years. Uh, my students tended to be mostly doctors, nurses. Uh, health administrators uh, in master's and doctoral programs. And they were mid-career people. These were sharp, top of their fields. And I used to, first of all, I'll admit I went through one of the programs that I later taught in. And while I knew somewhat about eugenics before, I really was blown away by something, by a little film that one of our professors showed us called The Lynchburg Story, and uh, you can find it out on YouTube. It's it's not a terribly good recording out there, but it's still perfectly good for listening. There's a little bit of buzzing at the beginning, but that ends. Uh, Lynchburg was the site of the sterilization mill for the state, uh, at least for the white people. I think actually a lot of, for for African Americans, were were done in my own town at a place called Central State Hospital. But anyway, I was blown away by this film, and I've shown it to every class I've taught since then, which was probably, I probably taught, uh, I think it was 48 grad school classes in health administration and, and health studies and probably another dozen or two for undergraduates. Uh, And I've never, never stopped being in awe of this little obscure documentary. And the thing is, my students, again, these are top-level doctors, med school professors, such. Most of them had never heard any of this. They didn't know a thing about it. And this is stuff that was happening in their lifetimes. And you know, my mother, who was a bright lady, I showed her the film and she said, why didn't I ever hear about this? I said, well, Mom, why do you think you didn't hear about it? Because they didn't actually want to talk about it. They did want to talk about it in the 1920s and 30s. They couldn't shut up about it. If you look at the newspapers back then, they were bragging about it all over the place. Uh, sometime in the mid to late 1930s, both because of what was happening in Germany and because the the people doing eugenics in the U.S. were becoming revealed as charlatans, they kind of stopped wanting to talk about it because it was embarrassing. As I said, they didn't stop doing it. They just stopped talking about it.
1: That sounds very familiar about what's going on now is with the media where... If they don't want you to know something, then you just don't hear it. It doesn't mean it went away. It means you just don't hear it. I'm going to tell folks about something right this moment, and then we'll get back to that, is something I want you to know about since flu season is here, is cofix Rx. This is something that I started using almost two years ago when the whole coronavirus thing came out knowing that iodine has really good antiviral uh, effects. And Cofix-Rx is a nasal spray, so you put it up your nose and it destroys probably up to 95 or so percent of the germs. Very simple. And most of these respiratory viruses, of course, come through the nose. And if you can get them in the nose before it gets all the way down to the lungs, then hopefully you won't get sick at all, but at least be minimally sick. Our own Dr. McCulloch, he's one of the people who started advocating for this two years ago. And the really good part about it, it's formulated by doctors and it's made and manufactured in the USA, which to me is really important. And you can go back and listen to one of our shows called – the stranglehold that China has over our pharmaceutical industry. So it's really cool to have something made in the USA. So think about it. Look at the little icon on our page for CoFixRx. And it's simple. Squirt it up your nose a couple times a day and try to help keep yourself healthy during the cold winter months that are coming.
0: All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpitone iodine-based nasal spray, CoFix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. CoFix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the CopixarX banner ad on AmericaOutLoud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD.
2: Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation supported, faith based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time.
1: So back, we're going to wind up with this eugenics and, um, you know well, why it's so important to know
2: about it now let me let me jump in uh I, I was about to say when i was teaching for those 19 years it was a standard question i had i would teach them eugenics and i would say look these people thought they were absolutely sure they were doing the right thing they were sure that this was science at its best and the people who were you know, again the founders of eugenics were geniuses. Uh, It's just that they had horrible judgment in, uh, in certain respects. And I said, I want you to think about what you do in your jobs every day and try to think, what are you doing today that you're convinced is a good thing? But maybe, just maybe, 100 years from now, your great-grandchildren are just going to be embarrassed to death by what you did and said, and ask, what were they thinking? How could they have possibly thought that this was a good idea? I said, and I don't want you to say something that you're you're convinced will be thought of that way, just something that might be thought of that way. So again, I, I stopped teaching. I haven't taught in about five years. And frankly, during all those years, it was a tough question for them to answer. Now, invariably, one, one area that was a fairly easy answer, and it was on both sides, was issues related to abortion. So people said, well, maybe the fact that we're doing abortions will be viewed as horrible, and, or maybe the fact that we have some restrictions on them will be viewed as horrible. And, and you know, both of those whatever you think of the issue 100 years from now they may have a very strong opinion in one direction or the other but beyond abortion they had a very difficult time coming up with things they they would do it but it was tough if i were to ask a class that today i think it would be far easier i think i think that we wouldn't have enough time in the class to list all the things that are concerning so for instance there's much talk about fine-tuning, you know designer babies. So we have CRISPR technologies that allow you to edit the genes, uh, uh, ed- edit the genes of a baby in, I don't know what the stage is, but perhaps in utero or even even after a child's born. Certainly you can do gene editing to eliminate genetic diseases. But if you can do that, you can also edit genes to do other things. So, what will they think of genetic editing hundred years from now? How enthusiastic are we going to get on that? Are people going to say, "Well, here are the I'd like one with this, these color eyes. I want this. I want uh, I want them this tall, etc." <clears throat> and and you can you can think of other things. So. I'm going to be on a panel this week and one of the speakers is going to talk about you know, the fact that in Iceland at this point, there are essentially zero children born with Down syndrome and because they are universally aborted and, and you can have a debate on that and, and I, I'll be interested in hearing what the speaker thinks of that. But one of them that comes up Uh, So last year, I did a couple of podcast interviews with a famous person by the name of Temple Grandin. Uh, Temple Grandin is probably the most famous autistic person on earth. She's someone who very nearly was relegated to a mental institution at the age of three with the intent to be forgotten. Instead, her mother refused to do that. The doctor said she's never going to learn to talk and uh and so you may as well just put her away in the hospital well she's uh she's now 75 and last week i went to hear her talk and i did two interviews with her a year ago Uh, she became a world famous animal scientist Uh, she revolutionized the slaughter industry in the united states to make it more humane not just the united states and she is profoundly autistic. She talks about that a lot. She's an activist. And the question comes up with her discussions with her audiences, well, what if they, what if they figure out the gene or genes that determine autism? Uh, what would happen? Would we, would we eliminate people on the autism spectrum? And what would happen? So one of her answers is, well, if you did that, you would never again be able to get your computer repaired. And she she often says this when she's giving speeches at high-tech companies. And I've seen videos where she's looking at the audience. She said, I can look at this audience right now, and I know at least a third of you are out there on the spectrum. Uh, but there are people who would say, well, you know, if we figure out the genes of it, well, we'll just eliminate them. And an awful lot of the genius in the history of mankind has come come from people most likely who were either out on the autism spectrum or uh, were ADHD.
1: Manic depressive.
2: Manic depressive or dyslexic. Because while we think of each of those things as having profound deficits, they also confer some unusual, remarkable skills. And, you know, she'll talk about her grandfather, who uh, Temple Grandin's grandfather was a co-inventor of autopilot for airplanes. And I I gather from reading her, her writings and her mother's writings that maybe the grandfather was a bit out of the spectrum, but certainly the guy he worked with was way out there. And she talks, she talks about people in the high-tech industry who uh, – she'll talk about Steve Jobs. She'll talk about Al, Albert Einstein, uh, all of whom seem to exhi- exhibit characteristics that we would associate with, you know, being somewhere on the spectrum. And so if you get to the point that you can edit these things out, uh, what happens to creativity of, of – Humankind, and and so it becomes. I think it would be rather easy if I had this class again to say, "What are we? What are you doing today that you might be worried about in the future that might look bad to your great grandchildren?" Uh, and I think part of that is, you know, again, genetic testing of trying to perfect humans. That's what the eugenicists were trying to do. They wanted a a perfect species. They wanted the only the best, but you know they, they ended up eliminating a lot of valuable people.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things when I think about and I write about devaluing life is imagine if some of these biased healthcare professionals who feel like people should just be locked away or not treated or whatever had been the doctor for Helen Keller. Look at what the whole world would have lost. This is someone deaf, blind, and... And and uh, Helen
2: Keller, by the way, was an enthusiastic eugenicist.
1: Which is so interesting to me. Uh, Pete. Well, but, you know, that's what makes life interesting and what makes people interesting, because they're complex and not easy to understand. And speaking of complex, we can get a little bit brighter in our conversation. You're, in my mind, a bit of a renaissance man, if I may say. On this show, I can say man, I don't have to say person. That (laughs) when you're not being erudite, you're playing music. So how'd you get into music? And what do you play and all those good things?
2: I play music and I write music. So if you, anyone out there wants, um, so if you want to read my writings, you go to Bastiat's window, which is at grayboys.substack.com. If you want to hear my music, uh, you go to, um, to YouTube. And I think probably the easiest way to say is type in my last name. You have to spell it right. So look, uh, it's G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S, and type Grey Boys and channel, and up my channel will come in on YouTube. So how did it start? I remember the day it started, By 1959. My mother took me over a friend's house who was a piano teacher. She said, would you like to take piano lessons? And I said, "I absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I started that day, and I've never stopped. And I learned guitar the next year. My mother was a talented amateur musician, and she bought herself a guitar right at the start of the folk movement. And so I don't know, the year Peter, Paul, and Mary hit the scene, my mother was there with her guitar playing the the songs, and I, I learned to play it. I taught myself the instrument. Uh, I was small enough that I had to hold the guitar like a bass fiddle, and I wrote my first music in 1962. I entered in a I was I was a pretty precocious kid, and I entered it in a national competition. I did well in the competition, and I actually maybe a year or two ago took that 1962 piece of mine and arranged it a bit more as a jazz composition, and it still holds up pretty well. So. I um, I started, I've, I've dabbled in composing over the years. I was in orchestras and did piano for my whole life. I started dabbling pretty heavily in composing in the early 2000s, but sort of haphazardly. And I actually published a piece on Substack today where I talked a little bit about my history and uh, I was writing about the, The Role of Mortality on Human Creativity, the fact that we all want to leave a legacy and it makes us a little bit in a hurry to do things. And I mentioned that there was a a Brazilian singer who decided not to sing too much more and she was raising children. And when she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, she went ferociously into composing and performing because she said, I need to leave my legacy. And for the 10 years she had left, she created a great legacy. Well, I thought of her in early 2020 when COVID started and we were all panicking, thinking there's a reasonable chance any of us could die at any moment. And I thought, well, if this stuff takes me away, no one is ever going to know that I wrote a lot of fairly nice music. know i'm 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 an amateur and i don't pretend to be anything more than that but i think i'm pretty good at it so i because of this thought of well covid's pretty nasty stuff and people are dying i better leave some music behind just in case my insurance policy so i i opened the youtube channel and i've been posting songs ever since i think well, I haven't counted lately. I've probably got 125 original compositions uh, at this point posted on there. I've probably got another 50 to 75 in the works. I'm, I've got a goal I'd like to have 200 up by the end of the year. I don't know if I'll make it, but but I'll get close. And And it's just something I love doing. And my wife's an artist, and we've started pairing her paintings with my music. So when you go out there, you get two for one. You get my my music and her paintings, and and she's very good. So it's something we we didn't have a moment of boredom during all the lockdowns and quarantines. Uh, she was downstairs painting, and I was upstairs writing music. And you know, now that we're not quite so worried about the mortality part, it's still uh, a great deal of fun to work together with her and 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 produce these works of music and art.
1: Well, in our last couple of minutes, I just want you to make this triangle, all the points meet where your upbringing in Jim Crow South, your Mm -hmm. musical avocations and talents, your teaching of eugenics. How do all these intersect?
2: Sure. So... Of these things, certainly the racial stuff came first. I became aware of that at a very early age. And and I'll add one of my mother's great points of pride was that a book came out on the life of African-American soldiers in our town in the 1950s and 60s. And my parents had a little clothing store there. And the book gave a shout out to them as one of the few places in town where they could go and be treated as equals. And that was a source of just, you know, my my parents were not political activists of any variety. They just were moral, they were ethical, and they weren't going to have separate restrooms or separate changing rooms or anything in their store. And it was just, that's the way it was. Um, So that's where it started now in the music, you know, I, I I knew lots of people at both sides of town, and especially when we got into high school, and I was very active in music. And the African American students came over from the other high school. As I mentioned, they brought a lot of their musical traditions over, which didn't sit right with everyone. But I just loved the stuff. Um, I had my mother had been my mother had been a jazz fanatic. And so I grew up listening to, uh, oh, I don't know, Count Basie and um, uh, Duke Ellington, and lots of others. When the movie Green Book came out about Don Shirley, and no one had ever heard of him, he had been long forgotten. I was able to say, "Well, I didn't forget him because I've still got my mother's Don Shirley albums from the uh, from the mid '60s."
1: Well, I tell you, we could go on and on, but unfortunately, the clock is ticked away and our hour has come to an end. Well, after you get into the reparations, we'll have to talk about that because California already has their reparations committee. And I urge everyone, if they're ever asked what their race is, to just say human. So- Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I always, always learn a lot from you. And I'm sure our listeners did too.
2: Delighted, Marilyn. Always a pleasure.
1: So thank, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you all know, we are always a beat ahead. And the Really good part about the show. We're on at five and then at 10, and then at eight the next morning on iHeart. But you can go to the podcast anytime, and the show's downloaded to podcast in about 24 hours. And all the usual suspects Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart have them. So I bookmark it, of course. I have to, I guess. But I want you to bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. Whether you agree with what you've heard or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.